studying the context Bible, and if you're here this morning, we're calling a timeout. This week, instead of studying the context Bible, we are going to talk about the book that's come out, which you have been a part of. Many of you were in the class when I taught a series a couple of summers ago entitled, Your God is Still Too Small. And and by the grace of God and the encouragement of you and some others, uh, 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 we took that book to IVP and they showed great interest in, in uh, publishing the book. But they wanted me to do it with a different twist. They wanted, they said, they said, they said nobody reads your God is too small anymore. So to do a riff off of that would not be received by many people. But they would love to see me rewrite it as Christianity on trial. And so I did so. It's got some things that are different than when we were learning in class. So I urge you to read it. I hope that you will. Uh, I'll tell you that as I preview it, this preview has been approved for all audiences. Uh, uh, This book has been rated GE. That means it's good for everyone. So read the book and pass it on. And uh, uh, we're delighted to give you a copy of the book. I do want you to know if you pass it on or if you buy copies and people think, oh, look at that lawyer up to his lawyer shenanigans plugging his book shamelessly on the Internet or on the class or whatever. All of the royalties to the book have been assigned out uh, not that you really make much off of books anyway, but the, the, the nickels and dimes that come in don't go to us. This isn't about making money. This is about the message of the book. And that's why we're delighted to give the copies out today. Well, that's just, um, uh, that's, we thank the Lord for the ability to do that. And, and I don't hold it against authors who make a living off of doing, uh, writing books. Uh, but, but I make a living off being a lawyer, so I don't, that's easily done. So having said all of that, um, N.T. Wright says that books are like children. Books are like children. You pour your heart and your soul into them. You make a few mistakes, but you do the best you can. And then they grow up and they take on a life all of their own. They make their own sets of friends, people that you don't even know, read them and, and like them or don't like them. They probably make their own sets of enemies as well. And sometimes you're not as proud of them as you would like to be. You wish things were a little different, but you just wish them the very best and you poured your heart into them and, and you hope that life goes on. So with that, you've now got uh, uh, my sixth child. Um, uh, and it doesn't hold a candle to my first five of whom Becky and I are both immensely thankful and proud. But with that, uh, as you read the book, you'll get insight into the faith, but you'll also get some insight into me because I've tried to personalize each chapter with some stories from my trial work as a lawyer that seem to be relevant. So this truly is an intersection of my practice and my faith in, in the way that it's, it's developed as a book. Now, what I thought I'd do this morning is talk to you about the book from the perspective of who my intended audience is. When IVP expressed a desire to, to publish the book and we were working on it and we were under contract, uh, I had lunch with three or four of the IVP people who uh, do sales and marketing. And they said to me that it would be very helpful for them if they knew who my intended audience was for the book. Because if if you don't know the intended audience, you don't market it properly, I guess. 
And that was a good question for them to ask, but it's a question that was in my brain as I wrote the book. So it wasn't hard to come up with the answer. And I want to tell you the answer and explain the book to you this morning along the lines of the intended audience. So the intended audience is, first of all, the inquisitive believer. There are people who believe in Jesus and believe in in the Christian faith who are inquisitive, who are always looking to learn something more, who are always looking to, to kick their game up a notch, who are always looking for some additional insight. And my hope and my prayer is that those people will be blessed by this book and that this book will be for you, if you're in that category, something that, that is, is nourishing. Now, a second group of, of audience that I have for, for this book are those leaving the bubble. And to some extent, it's very appropriate that this book is being put out today. And by the way, you are the very first people to receive the copies. They're not on the bookshelves yet. They sent them to us a week before they sent them to anybody else. Yeah. So you guys got, I asked them, I said, can my class get it before anybody else? And they said, absolutely. You got the books first. I say that. I gave six copies to family members on Friday. <laughs> so my, you, my extended brothers and sisters, uh, it's family weekend with the book. And so you got it. But it's appropriate that it be on graduation weekend in a way because I wrote this. And Steve and I had many conversations about this book and different parts of it as it was being developed for, a cla- for the class. But, but some of our discussions have been, Steve's got three children that have left the nest. I've got three that have left and two that are hanging around, one of whom we'll probably have to kick out at some point. But we adore her so much, I'm not sure we ever will. But uh, she's talking about homeschooling college with Becky. Um, and we love you, Rebecca Jane. Um, But I characterize my audience as those leaving the bubble. Because as all of those kids walked across the stage today from all those different high schools and from the home schools, they're going to go out, some into the workforce, some into higher education, some into both. And they leave the bubble of the protection of their family, whether they realize it or not. It's a scary thing for a parent to send their kid off to college, isn't it? It was a scary thing as a kid leaving home and going to college. You're exposed to new ideas. You're exposed to new ways of thinking. You make your own choice as to whether or not you go to church. Nobody's going to see you on that Sunday from your home if you have moved away. And all of a sudden, the new ideas flood your brain as you leave the bubble. And I I wish I had had the foresight to give every kid graduating this morning one of these books and urge them to read it. Because I wrote it directly in mind with so many conversations Steve and I were having about the things that our kids faced when they left the home. Number three, the partial believer. There are people 
who believe in a God, they're willing to go there. But they don't necessarily believe in the biblical God. There is a lawyer that Dr. Bob and I know quite well. She's a very dear soul, a very sweet lady, who is desperately searching for what it is that she perceives in me makes me different than the other lawyers she's hung around in her life. And I've explained to her that I think it's my faith. And she has now embraced the idea that it is my faith. And so she wants a faith too, so that she can be unique. So she's gone to the Buddhist camp to get her faith. (laughs) And I've suggested to her, it's not simply the idea of having faith in some God. But I actually truly believe there is God as revealed by the Bible with whom I have a relationship. She hadn't quite gotten there yet. I'm sending her one of these. Because that type of a person is also an intended audience. Someone who sees the sliver of the moon and believes in the the, the sliver they see and don't realize there's a whole nother part to the moon yet to be revealed. And so with those three as the intended audience, I want to give you some ideas about the book today that kind of show you where the book is targeting those three audiences. So that's what I'm going to do. And then you get the secret. I'm going to tell you the two places where I blew it. I'm going to tell you the two parts I wish I had put into the book that I just failed to do. And maybe one day, God willing, if they ever do another edition and let me edit, then I'll add these two chapters because the book sorely needs them, in my opinion. So you'll get to know the, the, where I messed up. Let me talk to you about the inquisitive believer. And I want to use chapter six, biolinguistics and the communicating God to talk to you about it. I introduce that chapter by talking about one of the first things I do when I know I'm going to be in trial in a case. And that is I go into the actual courtroom. I go in preferably when no one really is around. And I try to orient myself. Okay, the jury's over here. Here are counsel table. Which seat do I want? I can't tell you how many times I've sent Juan Wilson into court having the guys unlock the door because he's the first one in there so that he can go run to the courtroom and claim my seat for me. Because I want that seat, not that one, not that one, not that one. I want that one, and I know it ahead of time. I figure out where I want the the projector for the images ahead of time. Where I want the Elmo for me to do my little drawings on ahead of time. Now, I do all of that because I want to maximize my ability to communicate with the jury. I want that jury to be able to hear me. I want them to be able to see me. I want to seamlessly be able to use something I'm drawing or writing. I want them to be able to see the video behind me if I'm using PowerPoint 
without having it on one side of the courtroom and me on the other where they get whiplash going back and forth. We are communicating people. In a courtroom, there's a court reporter who's got a machine. And that machine, she's able to take down, or he, every word that's being said. And it's not because they type really fast and spell out the words. It's all done by syllables. There are basically 40 syllable sounds that are made when we speak. Did you know when we speak, there are 225 muscle activations each second we're speaking? You're thinking, that's crazy. No, that's science. There are 200, think about it. When you're speaking, your diaphragm is working, your lungs are working. Get a drawing sometime of what your larynx, your voice box looks like. It's got all these different muscles. And then you've got your throat that you contort and twist. Sometimes you wad it up if you want to talk like this. Sometimes you deepen it. If you want, I say, if you want to be from Alabama or Georgia, boy, I say, bowl my weevil. Then you got to oh, pull it back, foghorn, leghorn. You got to use your tongue differently. And not just the tip. There are all these different parts of the tongues, the glutteral stops and all. You've got 225 muscle activations each second you speak. And do you know what? You don't really think about it. You really don't. Let's use the Elmo for a moment. Let's take the word climb. And let's take the word fish. Say climb with me. Excellent. Now, if we want to make it past tense, Ellen, what do we add? E-D. Say it now. Very good. Fish. We want to make it past tense. Say it. What? Y'all just said F-I-S-H-T. Fished. I mean, you got the D on climbed. You said climbed. Duh. But you changed the D sound to a T on fish in the past tense. And it required all these different muscles in your brain. I mean, in your mouth. And, and, and you did it automatically. And if I say to you, why do you pronounce the D like a T in fished? But in climbed, it's a D. 99 out of 100 of you are going to say, I don't know. <laughs> or because you do. One out of a hundred might know the rule. All of that's done in your brain unconsciously. Do you know why? Because we are wired for communication. People thought for years that communication was something that we were just taught. 
And if you didn't teach someone how to communicate, they really would not know how. And then in the 1950s, along came MIT guru Noam Chomsky. And Noam Chomsky developed a theory that is now the general consensus accepted theory among biolinguistic studies today. And that is that our brains are hardwired for language and communication. The Greeks knew it. The Greeks knew it a long time ago. How many of y'all know the Greek word for word? In the beginning was the word. Yes. L-O-G-O-S in the Greek. Logos or logos if you're from Lubbock. Logos. Now, what do we get from... That's the word for word. What do we get in our English language from logos? Logic. All of the ologies. Theology, biology, zoology, astrology. Do we know why the word word is also what produces logic and ologies, which is study of or talking of? The reason why is because we think in words. Our minds think in words. Helen Keller goes deaf and blind at 19 months, but she's able to develop such vocabulary, deaf and blind, but develops such vocabulary that she's able to write books, be a political activist, give speeches, and live a fruitful, full life because her brain was hardwired for language. Now, what are the implications of that? In the book, I'm discussing this in a later chapter after we've already talked about, is there a God? And if so, what kind of God would God be? And, and, and the nature of God with man. But within the framework, having already dealt with that, if we have a God who made us, who knows how we're made, who has an interest in us. And this God knows that we are wired. He hardwired us for language. Shouldn't we expect this God to communicate to us in language? Shouldn't we expect to be able to communicate to this God in language? And so within the framework of the book, what I tried to do is I tried to take some, some, for example, there's a whole group of communication theory uh, that, that exists. The, the communication walks out there and they have these, these words they use and these ways they talk. And, and I talk about it some in the book, but, well, I don't have time to tell you. Read it. So back to the PowerPoint. So some of this is to try and, and put another aspect onto our faith for the reader 
who is someone that's inquisitive as a believer. From one believer to another. Can I tell you a secret? I think we live in the most exciting time in the history of humanity except for the 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe the apostolic age will open it up beyond those 40 days. But those people were getting killed for their faith. So ours is a little bit more enjoyable, at least in America. Let me tell you why. Science has opened up vast areas of understanding into humanity, into the world about us, and into the cosmos. And they reflect magnificently upon God. We get more insight into God in our age than most people ever have historically. Because we're beginning to see the delicacies of how he works. I'll talk about it more in a minute. But right now, let's leave the inquisitive believer and let's talk about those leaving the bubble. Chapter 4, Who is God, is one of several chapters I have on the issue of who is God in the book. First, is there a God? But if there is a God and we decide reasonably that's the reasonable conclusion we should draw from our experiences, our understanding, our reasoning, uh, that life and the world around us. We decide it's reasonable to believe there's a God. Then what kind of God is there? So I spend a chapter trying to erase the board in your brain of the bad concepts of God. you got to erase and get rid of the bad concepts of God. And then I say, now let's write on what the biblical image of God is. Let's try and understand the biblical image of God. So who is God? Well, I make the point for the people leaving the bubble to let God grow with your view of the cosmos. And on the left, you see a hand-drawn picture by me that's actually in the book. It's figure 4.1. Yes, this is a sign this book will go nowhere. (laughs) Hence, we give it away. If we look at it on the Elmo, it's on page 76. It's not the color version. So can we go to the Elmo for a moment from the booth? Do we have the Elmo? There we go. See, it's not color on on the book. It's a real pity because... If we go back to the, uh, uh, yeah, it, I, the color just adds so much to that drawing. <laughs> they sent me this email saying, we need to know if this is copyrighted so we give appropriate credit. I, I emailed them back and said, no, I actually drew that myself. <laughs> like, you can't tell? I mean, come on. <laughs> It's a takeoff from a famous drawing that was on the cover of the New Yorker magazine. But the premise behind it was in 1976 or 77 or whenever you want it to be, when I lived in Lubbock in high school, that was kind of my view of the world. I lived on 16th Street between Toledo and Utica. That was a massive area. That was really big. 
And if I wanted to think about how big the world was, I knew where my high school was. I knew where Texas Tech was and the football field. I had our church just past Texas Tech right before the cotton fields. And if you went past the cotton fields, you could turn left and go to New York City, turn a little left and go to D.C., or turn right and go to Houston. Don't keep walking. You'll just hit the ocean And then you're going to have either England, Europe, or Africa. They're these real small little things way over there. Because to me, what was really big was the world in which I lived. And what I experienced. And God fit real well into that world as God. Compared to life on 16th Street, God was omnipotent. But then you leave the bubble. You go to college, or you go to work, or you move, or you meet people that expand your horizons. And all of a sudden, you wake up one day, and you realize that place that you grew up is a lot smaller than you thought. When I was in Lubbock, I did not really like to go to the Taco Villa on 84th Street. Because it was clear across town. It took seven minutes to get there. I didn't understand how bad clear across town was till I lived in Houston. And for some reason right now, living up here in the Champions area, the idea of going to that Taco Villa is like going to Clear Lake. Or something down near Galveston. And then we go back to Lubbock. Hey, you want to hit that Taco Villa on 84th Street? No, I don't want to drive to Clear Lake. Well, actually, it'll take seven minutes. Oh, yeah, that's closer than church. (laughs) Because my world's expanded. Now, here's what happens to us. And I tried to bring expansion ideas into the chapter. I talk about the idea that The stars, by the best guess of astronomers, there are 10 to the 23rd power stars in the sky. That means 10 followed by 23 zeros. Those are stars. Those are those monster things that are massive and huge that dwarf our earth. There's so much in this universe that if you don't go out and learn those things and at the same time walk in fellowship with God, pretty soon you associate God with 16th Street. And you think, I've grown up too much for God. Yes, God was a marvelous childish idea. But it turns out there's so much more in the world. And so I want those college graduates, I mean high school graduates, I want those well college graduates, I want everybody, I want my kids to know, I want my nephews, my nieces to know, if you leave the home and you don't grow with God and take God with you and go to church and do the spend quiet time and study his word and get involved in fellowship, then as your experiences expand your brain's view of the world, God stays in that part of your brain that existed when you were a kid. 
And one day you just start thinking that God is a quaint idea for childhood and children. But you've outgrown it. When the truth of the matter is, God is greater than everything you've learned. And what you have learned in this expansive world isn't even a gnat compared to God Almighty and what you have left to learn. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, trained at the foot of Gamaliel, memorized the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul, from a family of of power and wealth and strength, the Apostle Paul, who's so zealous, he'll kill people he thinks of blaspheming God, sees Jesus on the road to Damascus, is blinded. The Apostle Paul loses the scales that fall off his eyes as Ananias prays over him and baptizes him and he embraces Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, who's able to perform miracles, who sees the world unfold before him, who writes over half of the New Testament by book count. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, Now... I see in a mirror dimly. But then when Jesus comes, I'll see face to face. Now I know partially. Then I'll know fully. Even the Apostle Paul knew he had this much knowledge of God's beauty, wealth, uh, honor, power, glory, splendor. And he'd seen the resurrected Jesus. God is so far beyond. And we need to recognize that. And so that's part of those leaving the bubble and what I'm trying to do with those people uh, in that sense. Now, the third group is the partial believer. These are the people like uh, Bob's, my friend Lisa, who are coming to grips with some of this, trying to figure out what is reality and and what isn't it. And so chapter 7 is a good example of how I try to to target those people, at, at least explaining my faith and, and uh, where, where I am on these issues. And so chapter 7, reality and the truth of God. This is a magnificent chapter. If we consider the cosmos and the world outside us, but also consider ourselves and where we sit in relation to it, you consider what your life is. The question becomes, what is real? What is true? What is actual? Which story, to use postmodern thought, which story do we believe in that's explaining reality? So this is the chapter where I call as witnesses Nick Bostrom, Plato, Chang Su, Rene Descartes, and the Truman Show. Spoiler alert, I do give the conclusion to the Truman Show in the book. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, uh, spoiler alert. (laughs) Nick Bostrom is one of the top thinkers in the world. He's a professor at Oxford University. I have been told by a, a, a gentleman who teaches logic and philosophy at Oxford, my son, that probably... 25% of the faculty at Oxford think there is a reasonable chance Nick Bostrom's theory is correct. Here's Nick Bostrom's theory. 
You and I, we're part of a computer. Not in the matrix sense. We're not, our hearts aren't powering the computer. But there comes a time, Nick Bostrom says, in human civilization when a computer will be invented that can actually simulate human thought. And the way it does that is by having programs and compartments that basically act, think, behave like a human and have consciousness within the computer program. And if humanity will ultimately develop such a computer, who's to say humanity hasn't already done it? And we are those little conscious bits of independent thought within the computer program. And the computer is us watching because of some cosmic guru who's put it together, watching how we interact to see what the conclusions will be. Is that reality? Is that what we are? Plato had ideas of who we are. I'll leave Plato aside. You can read the book. Chang Su, about the same time as Plato, but in China. Are we the dream? Or are we awake? Rene Descartes, what is real? Rene Descartes is the one who said, I think, therefore I am. I think... My brain is thinking, so i got to know at least I'm real. I think, therefore, I am. Which, by the way, brings up the greatest joke that I did not put in the book. Rene Descartes walks into a bar. It's closing time. He orders a drink. The bartender serves him. Bartender says, Rene, we're closing down the bar. Would you like another drink before I do? Rene Descartes said, I think not. And poof, he disappeared. Um, I think, therefore I am, <laughs> Rene Descartes. Now, Descartes says, I'm going to build from what I think into my understanding of reality. And we discuss whether or not that works. Most of us have a cognition, have a, a, a thought process of what reality is. But how do we really fairly uh, 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 come to that conclusion? All of this is in the book with an idea towards taking people and helping them who partially believe take the further steps. If there is a God, then let's take it the further step. What kind of God can we reasonably expect God to be? Is it a big G God or a little G God? Is God a he or a she or an it? Is God a supercomputer? What is reality? Is there morality? Is there right and wrong? Do we really have choices or are we just some soup of chemicals that are making chemical reactions based upon our DNA and the environment to which we're exposed? Those types of questions are ones that we look at to try to come to reasonable answers, to help a reasonable person not simply believe there's a God, but examine the basics of the Christian faith, what we would call orthodoxy, to see whether or not those are reasonable conclusions which we can draw and by which we can live, which can help mold and shape our lives.
So that's what we do there, the partial believer. So that's what we've got. The inquisitive believer, those leaving the bubble, and the partial believer. I wrote the book with those in mind. Hopefully, if you know somebody like that, after you read your copy, you can give them one uh, or get them one or do something like that, and, and maybe the book will minister to you or to them uh, in, in together. Now, what's missing? Two chapters that I should have written that I didn't put in there. I should have put in a chapter on the deceiver. There are a lot of people who are ready to embrace 90% of Christianity, but this idea that there's this Satan, they're just like, nah, I'm not going there. I mean, if there's really a God, he would have beat Satan. Newsflash, he did. But that's in another chapter. I do at least have that chapter in there. I use the lion picture here. Because Peter says that Satan is like a roaring lion on the prowl, seeking whom he might devour. There really is an enemy. And he's wily, and he's crafty, and he's deceptive. He's destructive. He'll whisper sweet nothings. To your itching ear. To beguile. To seduce. To persuade. To charm. You away from the Lord. And away from God's purposes. He's the father of lies. Jesus says. You want to know one of his biggest lies. He tells today. One of the biggest lies from Satan is, I don't exist. You don't need to worry about me because I'm not even here. You don't have to think, gee, is this the enemy? There's no enemy. Enemy, shmenemy. Go back to the temptations. I've used this illustration in class many times because it's one that's stuck with me from childhood. The first temptation Jesus faces having spent a period of starvation, fasting in the wilderness, was not Satan jumping out in a red devil suit with a trident and a forked tail and horns going, nanner, nanner, nanner. It was the deception of a friend. First temptation, turning stones into bread. What could be friendlier than offering a starving man bread? Trey, good buddy, you got to be hungry. We got to talk. Hey, uh, before we do, why don't you, hey, you're the son of God. Just turn some stones into bread, get something to eat, and we'll visit. Nothing can be more deceptive than the person you don't believe in. I left that chapter out. I wish I hadn't. The second chapter I left out, and I did post this PowerPoint before the sermon this morning. It just happens to fit hand in glove with David's sermon. Thank you, Lord. 
the community. Koinonia. God has made us to be social beings. God has made us where we interact with people. God has made us where we inter, uh, where, where we share. Koinonia is the Greek word. It means common. To hold in common. To share. To have jointly. It was the word used in Acts 2 that pastor was preaching from this morning. In Acts 2.42, that the, the, the early church devoted themselves to, boom, 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 boom. The teaching of the apostles, prayer, breaking of bread, and fellowship, commonness, the meeting together. And I left that chapter out, but maybe I can transcribe part of David's sermon and put it in there for next time because he did a marvelous job with it. So that's what's missing from the book. And, uh, oops, sorry. So with that, let me give you some points for home and we'll, we'll finish, bring this to a close. Um, I'd ask you, give it a read. If you find it boring, let me make a suggestion. Don't read it right before you go to sleep. (laughs) Unless you take like Ambien and you want to get off the drug. Now, this can help put you to sleep. Um, Give it a read. If you like it and find it encouraging, shoot me an email and let me know what parts you found encouraging because I'm going to give op- I'm going to have I think opportunities to speak about the book and I'd like to be able to say hey here are some things that people have found you know good um, if there are parts that you think stink uh, keep that to yourself <laughs> and then take these three points for home first be inquisitive We have a marvelous God. We live in a marvelous day where we can learn so much about him. Janet Seifert, there you are. See, there's this thing that I'm going to talk to you about. It's just I've I've refrained so far. And I don't have but a minute and a half for the points for home. And Dale Hearn makes me spend longer than that on them. So I'm just going to tell you that one day we're going to have a discussion about cells. We're going to talk about how within the cells... Inside the cytocell is the nucleus. And inside the nucleus are all the DNA strands. And we're going to talk about these PPARs that exist out there. They're peroxisome proliferated receptors, that uh, activated receptors. They go, they, that doesn't mean anything to many of y'all maybe. Didn't used to mean anything to me, but it does now. We have these little things in the cytocell. That's the part of the cell outside the nucleus that that are ambassadors that are allowed to go into the nucleus. And they're allowed to start tinkering with the DNA. And they're like ambassadors that go in. They get a plus one. They're allowed to take someone with them. The cell's the most miraculous thing there is. And we'll talk sometime about how... I believe this shows the hand of God, but that's not today. Be inquisitive. Please, be inquisitive. Point for home number two. Grow with the Lord. 
as you grow through your life, let the Lord grow with you. It's magnificent to see that our God is so much bigger than I thought he was when I lived on 16th Street. The world is bigger, and so is our God. And last point for home, fill in the holes of your views about God. Don't be satisfied with just thinking, yeah, I think there's probably a God. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Go ahead and push yourself. Push yourself to consider what are the implications and what might it mean. And then next week, we'll get back to the context Bible. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the blessing and the honor of getting to talk about this with my friends and my family in here. And I thank you for the encouragement that so many of these people have been. And and I thank you for this church and the encouragement of Pastor David and Pastor Stephen and urging me to to teach and to write. The fellowship of Steve Taylor and and bouncing so many of these ideas off him, Lord, and, and so many others. And I ask you to bless the book and bless what we're about in ministry, all of us, in the lives that you've called us to touch. Uh, May it always be about you. May our focus always be on you. And may all glory, honor, and praise be yours. The only place it's fitting. And we pray this through our Lord Jesus, who reigns victorious forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.